We are in Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. We are winding down Mark. We're going to be done in about six weeks. Mark 14 is the longest chapter in the book of Mark. It's 72 verses, and we're going to cover 31 of those this morning. So we got our work cut out for us, but we're going to get through it just fine. It went perfectly last night, and I'm really excited to do the same with you this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. Before we get started, I also just wanted... Pastor Dave's not here. He's in Orlando away for work. He's coming back Tuesday. I listened to his message yesterday. It was pretty spectacular. and um, Just heard great, great things about it. So thank you. We love Pastor Dave. And just be praying for him. He travels a lot. And uh, he'll be coming back Tuesday. Mark 14, starting in verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over Jesus' head. And some were angry. They were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? Ooh. For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in her memory as we are now doing this morning. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the uh, chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them, and they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says this, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepared for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as is it just as it is written of him but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed it would have been good for that man if he had not been born and while they were eating he took some bread and after blessing it he broke it and gave it to them and said take it this is my body and when he had taken a cup and given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank from the cup and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. (laughs) Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night before a rooster crows twice, Peter, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they, all, and they all were saying the same thing as well. Let's pray. Lord, as always, you are welcome here in this church and in the life of this church and in the lives of us believers. God, we pray that you would have your way with us, that we would continue to be molded and shaped into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful. Thank you for the gospel story. Yes, Lord, there's elements of tragedy, but it's beautiful as well. And so we're so grateful and we come with repentant and thankful hearts and focus our affections and our attentions on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray and everyone said, Amen. So here's our outline for uh, this morning. There's actually seven stanzas that we're going to cover um, this morning. These are the first four. So the plot where the scribes and the chief priests talk about wanting to kill Jesus and how do we seize him or, or arrest him, if you will. And then it goes to the perfume where um, we know that it's Mary who actually pours out this perfume over Jesus' body. And it's a beautiful story of anointing him for his burial. And then it goes back to the plan in verses 10 and 11 where they're glad to see Judas and they promise to pay him some money. And so they start implementing a plan and they look for an opportune time to, um, yeah, to take, take him over, to deliver him, to betray him. And then you see the disciples go into the city and prepare uh, the Passover meal, which was a really important time annually each year. And then after that, there's a pointing that during that Passover meal where Jesus points out and says, one of you is going to betray me. And then from there, Jesus essentially transitions from that Passover meal into the Lord's Supper, what we call communion or the Eucharist. And then lastly, he talks about this prediction in verses 27 through 31 that they're all going to fall away. And so it's really interesting. I think our gospel writer, Mark, does a masterful job in how he lays out these 31 verses. Perhaps you noticed as we read, maybe not, but perhaps you did, or you saw it in the outline that I just provided. If you go, it it goes from negative to positive, to negative to positive, to negative to positive to negative. It bounces back and forth. The plot is bad. The perfume is beautiful. The plan is bad. The preparation is beautiful. The pointing of one's going to betray is bad. The Passover where they have the Lord's Supper is beautiful. And then the prediction that they're all going to fall away is bad. It's like, what the heck is going on? This ebb and flow of life. Life's just kind of like that, isn't it? One writer has this to say. I'll put up the quote. It says, in this chapter and the one that follows, there's a strange agreement of heaven and hell. Light and darkness are going together in the same direction. Righteousness and sin are going to the cross, and God and Satan have decided that Jesus shall be crucified. Mark doesn't simply tell the story of Jesus at the beginning of Passion Week, which is where we're at. He tells the story from a very practical standpoint, doesn't he? Of life, of just how life seems to operate, where life has like these two tracks. We've got good stuff and bad stuff happening. Who did Mark write his book to? Do you guys remember? Mark wrote his book to Roman Gentile believers. 
in about the middle of uh, AD, about 65, 66 AD, what was going on for the Roman Gentile believers? Persecution. So there's great things happening and bad things happening. That's just the ebb and flow of life. And so the readers would have appreciated knowing that in the midst of good, there's some bad. In the midst of bad, there's some good. If Jesus experienced life in this manner, we should be encouraged, not surprised, to find the same dynamic in our own lives, I hope and I pray. Doesn't it appear that life can indeed exhibit a strange agreement of both heaven and hell? That's life, isn't it? Doesn't it often appear that light and darkness are going together in the same direction in our lives at times? Church, this is what it means to live the Christian life. The battle between good and evil never ceases. That is, until our Lord's triumphant return. Amen? While thousands were preparing for the joys of Passover... Jesus was preparing for his trial and his brutal death of crucifixion as he steadfastly set his heart to do God's will. It's crazy. It's beautiful. The ebb and flow of good and bad happening. So let's look at our first stanza, verses 1 and 2, the plot. Mark 14, 1 and 2. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and to kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. The chief priests and the scribes set out to do three things, those verses tell us. They wanted to seize him, which means to arrest him. They wanted to kill him, and they wanted to avoid a riot. As previously mentioned a few months back, Passover caused the number of people in Jerusalem to roughly quadruple in number. The common people held Jesus in high esteem for he had fed and healed many of them. If you recall the two feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000, that was just men, not including women and children. So Jesus was popular amongst the common people. This target, if you will, on Jesus' life should not surprise us, should it, if you've been reading the book of Mark. Mark previously mentioned plots against Jesus in Mark chapter 3, in Mark chapter 11, and in Mark chapter 12. And thankfully, this plot is going to be successful. Hmm? Thankfully, this plot to kill him is successful. It's hard to say that, isn't it? Sometimes great things happen in the midst of pain. Sometimes great things happen in the midst of persecution. And Jesus stayed the course. Thankfully, this plot was successful to kill him. It's hard to say. Our second stanza, the perfume, verses 3 through 9. Let's read those. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. John's Gospel, Mark doesn't mention, but John's Gospel tells us that this woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus from Bethany. 
Mary is found three times in the four gospel narratives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We find Mary only three times. Each time, what is Mary doing? Does anybody know? Huh? She's at Jesus' feet all three times. Mary was close to our Lord because she, she sat at His feet and listened to His Word. What a great model for us. And you see that changing with the New Testament writers because it was a male-dominated culture. And God, through His Holy Spirit, through the Gospel writers and through the other writers through the New Testament, is just showing the value of women and the power that women have in the church. It's beautiful to me. What a model for us to follow, men and women. This woman called Mary. She... Apparently, she and not the disciples, somehow she seems to clearly recognize that he's the Messiah and needs to be anointed. How can she see that and others not? Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, You always have the poor with you. It's important. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them, as we should, as Deuteronomy tells us we should. But you do not always have me. Turn to Luke 10. This is how, this is really the story we know about Mary. Look at Luke 10. Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. Verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to His Word. What better place to be? But Martha, but Martha, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Not bad things, but way lesser things. And she came up to Him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, and I put your name there too, church. Mark, Mark. Bill, Bill. Randy, Randy. You are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, the good thing. And that shall not be taken from her. We live in a very fast-paced society, especially in Southern California. And we need to choose the better things. We can get caught up with a lot of stuff and put Jesus until last. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Let me ask you this question, church. What are we doing for others that prevents us from doing unto Jesus? What are we doing for others? Which is not a bad thing. What are we doing for others that prevents us from doing unto Jesus? Do you get what I'm saying? Are we being Martha or are we being Mary? When we're Martha, not so good. When we're being Mary, that's fantastic. What are we doing for others? that we need to be doing unto Jesus first. Does that make sense? You follow me? Mary prepared his body for the upcoming burial. Yes, Jesus says that the poor will always be with us and that we can and should do good to them. But there's only one Messiah. There's only one Messiah. May we never replace time with Jesus with ministry. Right? I'm just saying it a different way. May we never replace time with Jesus with ministry. Would you want that for me? Would you want that for Pastor Dave? Would you want that for Pastor Doug? 
Would you want us to replace our time with Jesus with ministry? There's a lot of ministry to be done. I'm never for a lack of things to do, but I, I must never be lacking in my time with my Lord. Does that make sense? And you guys really respect that, and I appreciate that. Mark tells us that Mary anointed Jesus' head. John tells us that she anointed his feet. Isn't that interesting? And what I think that tells us is that Jesus is anointed from head to toe, from bottom to top and top to bottom. He is completely the Messiah, and what he did, his sacrifice on the cross, his anointing as Messiah, is that everything he's done and everything about him covers every sin, every fault, every foible that we could ever think or imagine or commit. He's completely the Messiah, completely anointed, and he can meet every need for every one of us. It's a thing of beauty. What does Christ mean? Jesus to Christ. What does Christ mean? Anybody know? It means anointed one. Jesus is about to die, and I don't think that he's been anointed yet. And Mary anoints him. Christ is just Greek for Messiah. Both Messiah and Christ mean anointed one. Jesus must be anointed. Christ is not his last name. It's not Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Anointed One. Like the widow who gave her entire net worth, remember her from Mark chapter 12, when she gave her two copper coins? We have yet another example in Mary. In verse 8, it says, what about Mary? What does it say in verse 8? Let's look at that again. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. That can be read as she gave all she had. She gave all she had. This perfume was imported from India. And it was a cost of about 300 denarii, which was just a little over a year's wages. So use today's money. I'm going to use a low end of, let's say you make 25 grand, or let's say you make 125 grand. Let's just take an average. The average would be 75000 a $75,000 bottle of perfume that she pours over Jesus. That, that's pretty costly. Is he worth it? Gosh, I hope so. I'm confident, I really am, that many of us, if put in a similar situation today, would respond just as lavishly and lovingly as Mary did. I am. I'm confident that we would. Many of us here would, if not all of us. Let me ask you this question. I'll say it twice. Is there or should there be a correlation between knowing who Jesus is, a generous and loving gift from God, and the generous and loving behavior of us, his disciples? Should there be a correlation between this generous, loving gift from God and the generous and loving behavior of us, his disciples? Absolutely. There should be a correlation. And Mary leads us in that. Our third stanza, the plan, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas was one of the twelve. He went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. And they were glad when they heard this, which just breaks my heart, and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Make no mistakes, church. The thing that Judas performed outwardly 
What Judas performed outwardly was absolutely despicable. It was horrible. But I wonder, I wonder, listen carefully. When you consider the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus teaches us a different way of teaching, when he says it's not just what we do outwardly, but the sins that we commit in the heart, that we don't, just lust, we don't just have an adulterous relationship with a woman outwardly, but if we lust for a woman in our heart, if we commit murder, not just outwardly, but commit murder towards somebody in our heart, right? If we consider the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches us that we can be just as guilty inwardly, well, I wonder, how often would you and I be found guilty for the same crime that Judas committed of betrayal? You get what I'm saying there? Do you and I inwardly betray our Lord and Savior like Judas did? What two things does it say that Judas gained? Look at our verses in verse 11. They were glad. He had a people group that was happy. They were pleased with him. And they promised to give him money. So he gained socially and he gained financially. He had some new friends. They were happy with him. He gained socially and he gained financially. Do we inwardly betray Jesus? What do we do in our lives that would mimic, if you will, betrayal so that we can gain socially or financially? Good question. Good question for us to wrestle with. How might we be doing the same? Our fourth stanza, the preparation, verses 12 through 16. On the first day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says this, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And that man himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Luke 22 tells us that it was Peter and John are the two that went into town. It was Peter and John that went to prepare the meal. And it would not be difficult to locate the man carrying the jar of water. Why? Because it was usually a woman that would do that, believe it or not. Right? It's just like, oh, must be the guy. The only guy carrying a jar of water. Jesus is so weird that way, I think it's just hilarious. Right? It's probable that Mark intended to suggest another instance of supernatural knowledge or power on Jesus' part because that's what the Roman Gentile believers would want to hear. They wanted to know the power of, of Jesus. And do you ever notice, as I just mentioned, that Jesus just seems to do some weird stuff? Right? He just seems to do some weird stuff in our lives. Why doesn't he just send him to the house? Right? No, you've got to find the guy that's carrying the water pitcher. But I think there's a reason for that. I think God does some weird stuff because there are things that God does that only God can do. And when God does stuff that only God can do, we're to pay attention. I think God's always doing things that only God can do. And when God is doing things that only God can do, we need to pay attention. The original... Oh, sorry. Skip that. Our fifth stanza, the pointing. Our fifth stanza, the pointing. Verses tw uh, 17 through 21. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, 
Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him, one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born at all. This announcement stunned all the disciples, except for one. Who was not stunned by this? Judas. Judas knew that Jesus was speaking about him. Jesus hid this from the other disciples. Why? He wanted to give Judas every opportunity to turn from his sin. Our Lord is so gracious. He's so loving. Who knows, in addition, had the others found out, especially Peter, what might have happened to Judas if they had found out that he was going to betray Jesus. In the East, in the ancient Near East, it would be a most vile act of treachery to break bread and then betray your host. If people like Judas were around Jesus, if people like Judas were around our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then we must accept the probability that they're in the church as well. Right? Why would that be any different? The beautiful thing, though, is like Jesus, may we also give them every opportunity to turn from sin. That's what the church is for. As crazy as this may sound, church, we must not make Judas into either a hero, huh? A hero? Yeah, right? After all, somebody has to betray Jesus. Thank goodness Judas did it, right? He's our hero. No. But we must not make him into a helpless victim of merciless predestination either. Judas was lost for the same reason millions are lost today. He did not repent of his sins and put his faith in Jesus Christ. That was his problem. Look at John 6, 63 and 64. It is the Spirit who gives life, Jesus writes. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. It's our disbelief that causes us to do vile things. Look at verse 21. It says, For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of Him. Which is tragic, right? The Son of Man must die. He must be crucified. It's to happen. But that's not the true tragedy. The true tragedy was the life of the betrayer. So often we get caught up in the tragedy of some of the hardship that we endure, but that's not the true tragedy. Because great things came from that. The true tragedy was Judas who betrayed him, which is what that verse tells us. What that verse is saying is this. If you have never been born again, there will certainly come a day when you wish you had never been born at all. I plead with you, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, there will come a day when you will wish you had never been born at all. And that's what verse 21 tells us. You need to get that right with our Lord. You want to talk to me about that? Talk to me about that. Serious business. Lastly, look at verse 19. They began to be grieved and say to him one by one, surely not I. Is there an exclamation point or a question mark after that? Question mark. 
They're questioning, is it, is it me? They're not saying, surely not I. They're not making a declaration. They're asking a question. Is it me, Lord? Am I going to betray you? J. Vernon McGee says this. All of them, listen, all of them knew they were capable of doing it. If you have not discovered, J. Vernon McGee says, if you have not discovered that you are totally depraved, that you are not a good person but a sinner, that you are thoroughly capable of turning your back on God, you haven't discovered much. Each of us could ask, is it I? This is how serious our faith is. This is how serious it means to walk daily, to pick up our cross daily and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because just like that, we can say, is it me? Is it me? We're so depraved. We need him so desperately. Our sixth stanza, sixth stanza, the Passover, verses 22 through 26. While they were eating the Passover, he took some bread, and so he introduces the Lord's Supper. And after blessing, uh, he broke it and gave to them. And he said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus instituted in this moment what Christians, you and I, commonly call the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, which was to replace the Passover meal. Eucharist is just a, a word in Greek that means to give thanks. Right? Where he gave thanks for the bread and gave thanks for the blood. What was Jesus about to accomplish by his death? On the cross, Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and established what we call the new covenant. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. The old covenant was ratified with the blood of animal sacrifices. The new covenant was ratified by the blood of God's Son. This new covenant would do what the old covenant sacrifices could not do, which was take away sin and cleanse the heart and the conscience of you and I, believers. Look at Jeremiah 31. Turn to Jeremiah 31. It's after the book of Isaiah, I think. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, God's people. Not like the one which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a faithful husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares our Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thank you, O Lord, for doing that through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is alive, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do next weekend, By faith, we have communion with our Lord. 
1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17 says this, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we, are all, for we all partake of the one bread. In fact, if you have time to go through 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11, it tells us four significant things about the Lord's Supper, about communion. If you want, you can write these down. I don't have them posted. The first thing, the first significant attribute of the Lord's Supper is this. It's a remembrance of Jesus. It's a remembrance of Jesus. If you've been here a while, we always focus on Jesus. We're to remember what Jesus did, because without Him, we're in trouble. It's a remembrance of Jesus. The second thing that our Lord's Supper does is it proclaims His death. It's a means of proclaiming His death. So important. The third thing is, is it's a means of communion with Jesus. Do we commune with a live person or with a dead person? With a live person. It's a means of having communion with a living Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the fourth thing is it's a symbol of the oneness of God's people. It's a symbol of the oneness of God's people. With all of our faults and foibles, we're part of God's body. And we're to love one another with all of our differences and with all of our nuances. And it's a global movement. We attach ourselves through communion with God's church globally. It's beautiful. We have that in common no matter where we go. When we take communion, we're communing with with the body of Christ. It's fantastic. So on some level, I'm the brother perhaps you never wanted. And vice versa maybe, right? But that's fantastic. It's beautiful. That's the body of Christ. And so we need to grow in that continually. And so when we take communion, that's a big, vital element. We make too much in Western culture of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not how it was intended. In, in, In the ancient Near East culture, it was all about community. And so community and unity is important. It's very important, right? We get it wrong sometimes in Western culture. Lastly, in this stanza, I'm sorry, yeah, Because of those four attributes, communion is not to be taken lightly. Communion is not to be taken lightly. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 27 through 29. It starts in verse 23 where it mentions the Lord's Supper. There's some verses there. You can read that, which is fantastic. But we're going to hit 27, 28, and 29. Because we're going to be doing this next week. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup after he's examined himself or herself. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. In other words, you better know who Jesus is and you better know who you are before you partake of his communion, his holy communion. And you better repent of your sins and really have a real honest understanding of your shortcomings and and what Christ has done for us on the cross. Amen? Look at verse 26. Going back in Mark chapter 14. Look at verse 26. After singing a hymn, they go to, 
they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus wraps up the Lord's Supper, this commemorative time that we're going to celebrate this way from this point moving forward. Right? He's celebrating his soon-to-be death and resurrection. And he sings a song. They sing a hymn. And what I would think would be a very heavy, heavy, hard moment, he sings. Imagine our Lord singing when the cross was literally hours away. Is that what you would be doing? Can you and I still sing during the cross moments of our lives? Can we do that? When we have those cross moments, the ones that we're in, the ones that we see coming, the ones we maybe just left, can we sing? Can we praise our Lord in those cross moments? I hope so. In our last stanza, the prediction, verses 27 through 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, which is a quote from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, I will not. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter kept uh, saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. The quotation from Zechariah, it told the disciples what to do when the Jews arrested Jesus. They were supposed to scatter. That's what they were supposed to do. Look at John 18, verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am He as they're arresting him. So if you seek me, fine, let these go their way. That's what they were supposed to do. In other words, men, get out of here. That's what Jesus is saying in this last stanza. Go, flee. And poor Peter, I think, takes way too big of a hit here. Poor Peter takes a big hit. They were supposed to split. They were supposed to scatter. First, I think he takes too big of a hit. Look at verse 31. At the very end, they all said the same thing. He didn't say anything different than the rest of them. They said they all said the same thing. They all failed, if you will. And second, Peter really put himself out there, if you really think about it. He actually risked his life by following Jesus. Even though he failed, arguably he failed less. He failed more courageously than the others. And I believe that our Lord wants Peter to be named. That's why he named him. He didn't just say one of them or all of them. He names Peter. Because I believe such examples can serve as an encouragement for you and I who have sometimes abandoned Jesus or are tempted to do so when times get tough. Oh, I can relate to Peter. I've been there like Peter. That word, fall away, in verse 27, it's also in verse 29. The Greek word is skandalizo. Skandalizo. And it does not carry the meaning of losing faith permanently. It doesn't carry the meaning of losing faith permanently. But it carries the meaning of losing courage temporarily. Has anybody done that? Maybe it's just me. Where we lose courage temporarily. And then look, as we wrap this up, look at 27 and 28. 
Jesus says to the disciples, you're all going to fall away. Because that's what you're just going to do. But after I've been raised, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. And go ahead doesn't mean I'm going to get there before you. Go ahead means I'm going to lead the way because that's what a shepherd does. I'm going to continue to shepherd. Even though you fall away, I'm going to continue to shepherd you because it's who he is. Even if you lost your uh, courage temporarily, I'm still going to shepherd you. Isn't that beautiful? What do we know about Matthew? Or, I'm sorry, about uh, Peter in the, from the book of Matthew. Look at verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 18. Yeah, Peter blew it, if you will. Matthew, do we have 16, 18? Yeah? Matthew 16, 18, perfect. I also say that you are Peter. What does the word Peter mean? Rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We can lose courage temporarily. We can fail our Lord. We can fall away. And God continues to lead us. He continues to shepherd us. And then He does stuff like that with us in spite of who we are and how we perhaps failed Him. Don't give up. Never give up. Thank you, Peter, for hanging in there. Thank you for for allowing Jesus to continue to shepherd you. What a great example for us. I'm going to pray as we close our time. The worship team is going to work their way up and close us in a song. And if you need prayer, our prayer team will be available down here in the corner. Let's pray. God, we thank you. What a privilege to gather around your word. Lord, we thank you for the good shepherd who indeed, as we see, is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Thank you for the example of the disciples and Peter who continue to follow in spite of their shortcomings. What a great example for us. Lord, you're so good to us. You're so patient with us. And we say thank you. In Jesus' name.